Introducing Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. This podcast is for parents who long to be meaningfully connected to themselves and their children, even as the demands of modern life are accelerated. Enjoy a collection of supportive conversations, meditations, and nuggets of practical wisdom to help you embrace the parenting journey as your greatest potential for personal growth. Welcome to the Mindful Parenting in a Messy World podcast. My name is Michelle, and I'm here today with Susan Kaiser Greenland, who is a friend. I can also say a teacher of mine. I've studied with Susan. She is an internationally recognized leader in teaching mindfulness and meditation to children, teens, and families. She's the author of The Mindful Child, and now most recently, Mindful Games, which is a wonderful book. I'm going to hold it up for a minute. Mindful Games. Um, She studied meditation with teachers from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition since 1997, and she's been featured on tons of news outlets and written about and spoken. She's spoken for us at Wisdom 2.0. I'm just so happy for her to be here. Thanks for being with me. I'm happy to be on your podcast and excited that you're starting one. Yeah, thank you so much. So I would love to start, Susan, by hearing, you know, people define mindfulness and meditation in such different ways. I'd love for you to tell our audience, you know, how you, how you describe these two words to people when they ask you. Well, I think that's maybe the most important question people can ask right up front because, you know, mindfulness has gotten popular, which is a great blessing and a little bit of a curse. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with that is that the the term has gotten a little bit blurry and sometimes different definitions, even for entirely meaning entirely different things, get conflated to come up with something that's not really very accurate. So let's start with mindfulness. And um, I think there's two ways that the word mindfulness is currently being used in the proper, or I'm sorry, in the popular culture. And one is what I like to talk about as capital M mindfulness. And that's more mindfulness as a way of life. It's an innate quality that allows us to navigate through life with attention, with balance, with compassion. Um, That's not what the contemplatives who are teaching mindfulness of breathing, though, are talking about when they're talking about mindfulness, which I talk about as kind of the, the lowercase m mindfulness. That type of mindfulness is a stance of attention. And it's a way that we look at life experience where we know where our mind is, so we know where our attention is, and we know our state of mind in real time. Mm-hmm. So let me repeat that just once. It's We know where our mind is, and we know our state of mind in real time. And what that actually means is that right now I know I'm paying attention to you, so I'm focused on you. I'm not distracted thinking about the past or the future. And also my attention is a little bit bright. My attention is pretty lively and bright. That's my state of mind right now. I'm pretty happy. And this is all present moment. So I'm aware of what's happening in my mind and I'm aware of where my attention is and all in the present moment without a lot of thinking about it or engaging in it at all, but just actual bare attention on what I'm doing right now. So that's how I define mindfulness. I just make a distinction between the capital M mindfulness, which is an innate quality of being in the world with attention, balance, and compassion, and the stance of attention on this mindfulness. And then John Kabat-Zinn has a fantastic definition of mindfulness, that stance of attention. 
which is paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment, which is another wonderful way of defining that stance of mindful attention. Meditation is something that is a little bit different, but it's a part and parcel of the same. There are a lot of mindfulness meditations, but all meditation is not a mindfulness meditation. And to draw on my definition of meditation, I draw on the meaning of the word in the Tibetan uh, language, which is really to become familiar with your mind, to acquaint yourself with your mind and yourself. So meditation is a way of working with our mind directly so we come, become more familiar with the qualities of our mind. And we do that in any one of a number of ways. So that's how I make the distinction between those two words, mindfulness and meditation. Mm, thanks. Thank you. And so what for parents, you know, there's parents listening in, um, you know, what, why would you tell them to study their mind? What's helpful in the parent child relationship um, when they study their mind? Well, the first thing that's really helpful in the parent child relationship, especially with the little kids is that as parents, we are, we are regulating and co-regulating ourselves with our children all of the time. Yeah. So we've all seen that, whereas the parent gets a little bit more excited without saying a word, you can start seeing the child get a little bit more excited and a little bit more activated. And so in order to be aware of what our simple presence is uh, doing within ourselves and, and to the people around us, we need to know ourselves a little bit better. And then you add the other layer of just how unbelievably hard parents and other caregivers tend to be on themselves. So many are perfectionists and hold themselves up to such a high ideal. So as we become more aware of the impossible expectations we have on ourselves to be super mom or super dad, um, then we can also develop a little bit more compassion and kindness toward ourselves. So we can only do that if we become more familiar with our own patterns of mind. And that's where mindfulness and meditation are really an enormous help. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, uh, I often think about and talk about this mommy guilt for me personally mm -hmm. and how meditation and mindfulness over the years has really helped me to um, work, work against myself in that way, because I step into the relationship with my kids, even when they were very young and now in the teenage years as well, when I make a mistake or I raise my voice or I do say something or do something I wish I hadn't, that, that mommy guilt comes in so hard. And, and even after all my years of practice, it'll, it'll grip me yeah. um, and, until I, until that awareness kind of breaks through again. I love the term mommy guilt. And I've got to tell you that mommy guilt is a wonderful teacher. Yeah. Um, as long as we don't let it take over, it's like the little heckler on our shoulder. You know, it's wonderful. And then we see, okay, we're feeling guilty about it. It only comes from our best instincts, right? Yeah. We only want the best for our kids. And we only worry that if we do something wrong, that something terrible will happen. That's where mindful, I'm sorry, mommy guilt comes from. And that's where the mindfulness can help because what are you doing? You're knowing it, what your mind is right then and your state of mind in real time. So, uh-oh, right now, mommy guilt is back. It's visiting mm -hmm. again. And um, that's all you need to do. Once you have some awareness, then everything else will follow. Yeah, yeah. No, I found it really helpful in, in um, being able to take that um, 
the guilt and see what mess was made um, to bring it on and to be able to start to learn from it. So I really like that you added that in, in that, you know, these are the greatest lessons um, I've found with my kids when I screw up the worst. <laughs> if I don't just brush it under the rug, if I'm willing to kind of sit with it and stay on the mat with it, mm-hmm. it usually is is some of my greatest learnings. I'm guessing you found that with your children. You have two grown children now, yeah? They're 20, 23 and 25 now. Wow. I keep calling him 22, but he's actually recently turned 23. <laughs> yeah, just being present with these awful feelings we have, you know, and, uh, and, and also trusting that we're strong enough to be able to just be with them. And we don't have to beat them back. We can just give them enough space and, and let them run their course and then also learn from that whole experience too. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, when did you start practicing when you had your children? Had you always practiced? Was that something that came about at some point? Yeah, no, I, I practiced, I started practicing when I was pregnant with Gabe. So what is that now? That's 24 years ago. Wow. And we were having a family crisis. I mean, it's a funny story. My, we had a health crisis, which was everything's fine now. And um, I was working as a lawyer at the time. I was pregnant with Gabe and Allegra was probably about two or two and a half. Mm-hmm. And um, the health thing I was worried about had to do with my husband. And I started doing all this reading about food. And I decided that our kitchen cabinet in New York City at the time was full of poison. So I'm up on a ladder on a stool, pulling out all the white flour and sugar and you name it, anything processed and like throwing it in a big big garbage bag. And my husband comes in and says, hey, we're going uh, to meditate. And I said, oh, you know, I really can't go to meditate. And I've got this big project. He said, oh, but we really have to go. And he was the one who had the health problem. And I thought, he needs to go to help him with his health problems. So of course I'll go. And he said, no, 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 Susan, you need to go because you're driving me crazy. My anxiety about the kids and my work and the health problem was just out of control. So that's how I started practicing. And to be totally honest with you, we said we were at the Zen center and I couldn't stay seated on a cushion for more than a couple of minutes. So the bell rang the lights were low. We were looking at a white wall. And I think I made a couple of minutes before I just took out, got out of there. And I went out on the streets in New York and waited for my husband to finish the meditation session. Wow. And I like telling that story because look at now I teach this stuff. So, I mean, if I could get through this, then anybody can. So that's how I started. And then with our, when working with kids, my son, again, by that time, he might've been in late preschool or early kindergarten, so four or five-ish. And um, uh, we, we, our family, uh, I studied Buddhist meditation, but for our family to go to a Buddhist or a Dharma center for family programs just didn't make sense for us. Our kids were in uh, Sunday school studying for their bar and bat mitzvah. And so what we ended up doing is uh, taking practices that I had been learning uh, that were largely attention practices. And I just started simplifying them over and over again and trying them out with my kids and eventually volunteered uh, in the Boys and Girls Club and ultimately the public school teaching them the kids while I was still practicing law. So that's how I got to this point, which is how so many parents get to this point. They practice themselves and they think, hey, if this is helping me, maybe it'll help my kids too. 
Yeah. And how long did you do that for? I'm curious. I've never heard that story. How long were you volunteering in the schools and teaching your kids and still practicing law before you kind of made it your mission or what inspired you to do that? About 10 years. I think it was. um, So I was, I, I, we started a foundation that was um, here in LA bringing uh, mindfulness into some public schools that actually just paid for the supplies and that sort of thing uh, in 2000. And then I think my book came out in about 2010. And during that period of time, most of it, except maybe for the last few months, I was also still working as a lawyer here. And I'm not one of those people who hated practicing law. I actually loved practicing law. Um, It just, I didn't, I ended up, this became my passion and I started doing that. So when the book came out, I, the first book came out, I was lucky enough to be asked to go around and start teaching uh, adults about working with kids and, and, in that process, I sort of um, segued out of my law practice. Wow. And so how did this book come to be, The Mindful Games? I mean, what... what, what Mindful what Games came uh, after my... Um, after The Mindful Child was published, then I was really asked to go all over the place and start really teaching adults how to practice with kids. And often teachers and parents and, um, and clinicians... And I had done that some before through in their kids. And there were several people that had gone into a couple of schools here in Los Angeles to do some work with kids in the early 2000s. But they had always been longtime meditators. So it was pretty easy for me just to show them how to adapt practices that they already knew as meditators for kids and how to simplify them. When I started going out to schools and clinics and doing parent talks, Uh, I had a whole new experience. I was always, for all that time that I had worked primarily with kids, I was very used to working with what I call a conscript audience, a group of kids, many of whom didn't want to be there, but their teachers Mm -hmm. or their moms or their clinicians thought it was a good idea. So I was very used to that. It was only after The Mindful Child came out that I got out there and I was starting to work with a conscript group of adults, people whose bosses thought it was a good idea for them to learn mindfulness, but they didn't want to be there. So I had to figure out how to take what uh, people who were interested in Buddhism were willing to do the real hard, you know, roll up your sleeves work to figure out how to keep these uh, practices still complete, but secularize them which is actually takes quite a bit of work and effort. How do you communicate that to people who really want something much more simple and who also, some of whom aren't interested in this at all and think it's really a crazy idea. So I started going through and reworking much of the material that I had already created and and developing new material that would fit more within a model that parents and teachers are accustomed to. What are the life skills that we're trying to develop? So all of the games in the book and in the cards that'll come out in April, all of those games are keyed into life skills like quieting, quieting your nervous system or focusing or caring or connecting or seeing and reframing. So first I needed to come up with the capacities that these games were trying to build and identify them quickly and easily for the parents so that they could say, okay, right now my son could use a little help focusing. So I'm going to grab this game that is good for building focusing and we're going to play that. 
Mm. Then the other layer that was so very important is that in schools, especially people had a great experience with mindfulness and teachers were teaching mindfulness and we had wonderful anecdotal and sometimes research results. But when you were brought in there to consult with them and say, hey, why are you ringing that bell? What's your teaching objective? People really didn't know. They knew that it worked, but they didn't understand the teaching objective. So the other layer I wanted to do was be able to really kind of make a nice, simple chart, plain, easy chart that would tell people about the different universal themes that are not just out of contemplative traditions, but are also out of regular old psychology and education. And what are these themes like acceptance and kindness and compassion and open-mindedness? And so these games are also keyed into the capacities or life skills that the kids are developing and the themes that we are supporting. And then there was a third piece that became really obvious is that parents and teachers wanted to know how can we do this mindfulness stuff other than just sitting still on a cushion? Because so many kids and adults, frankly, were not that interested in formal meditation practice. Mm. So for people who weren't that interested in formal meditation practice, but were very motivated to begin somewhere, but they just didn't know where to begin. Or for people like me who were interested in meditation practice, but remember when I started, I couldn't sit still. It wasn't that my mind was racist. My body was just so full of nervous energy. I just couldn't, I couldn't hold it. I hadn't developed the capacity to tolerate that energy yet. So anyway, for those people, when they start to understand the themes of patience or acceptance or open-mindedness, then those themes can be threaded throughout daily life whether it's while you're in carpool line and talking about patience, whether you're reading children's books, there's patience, or in school, whether it's patience in science or math or history. So those things, the combination of developing or really identifying the life skills and capacities that these games develop and the themes that are threaded throughout our lives that these games point to and that mindfulness and meditation point to, were the things that I felt after being really fortunate enough to be on the ground and visit and study um, with all sorts of schools who were implementing mindfulness. I thought those were two contributions I could offer. And that's the second book. And is this book, could, a, could someone who has no experience with meditation or mindfulness pick up this book and, and, and use it? Yes, that's, it's designed for that. They can use it. They can think, okay, I really want to build some caring and connecting skills. They can look for games and caring, connecting, and then they can practice them within a few minutes. And the hope is that we start where we are and then we start building. And then very frequently people who get started in that way start turning, uh, looking for more formal, uh, longer term practice. But we start with short moments of mindfulness uh, frequently throughout the day. I think that that really is the best approach for newcomers, regardless of their age. Yeah. And they always say, right, the hardest part about meditation and mindfulness is remembering to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is when you, when you set the bar so high, you got to sit for half an hour a day. You have to sit for 45 minutes a day, set that bar so high, people just can't do it. And even people uh, who were real meditators like I was when I was coming up as a mom, just no way. Yeah. I went through some periods of getting up at 5.30 in the morning and sitting on a cushion for 45 minutes before getting the kids up to go to school, but that just wasn't sustainable. Yeah. But short periods, little brief moments of, of looking inside or looking outside with that kind of 
uh, awareness that we were talking about a minute ago called mindfulness with that mindful stance of attention. You can do that throughout the day. You can draw your kids into that practice with you. And before you know, before long, you'll start to see some pretty big shifts, which I know you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I have that same thing in common with you. The first time I sat about 10 years ago and I was going through a coaching program Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I had done guided meditation and I'm like, no, oh, I can, you know, they were guiding. I'm like, I can do this. I'm, I, I'm good at guided meditation. And then the silence came and they had a silent for about maybe 25 minutes. I don't know how long it seemed like days. And I literally thought I was going to just jump out of my skin. I mean, my heart mm-hmm. was beating. I was so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I was just, just could not I stayed, I stayed there, but it was pure suffering. <laughs> for yeah, me. And that's something you don't hear a lot about, but it's very common, but you don't hear a lot about it in meditation circles. You hear a lot about how your mind is racing, but not a lot about how your nervous system is reacting. And if there are parents watching this or listening to this right now, there are such simple little things you can do to help when your nervous energy starts to get so strong that you feel like you're about ready to jump out of your skin. And there's a section in the book called Quieting, but just briefly, a couple of the things are, you can just hug yourself a little bit. Mm. That self-soothing, that you know, just giving yourself a little hug is a very good sensory way to self-soothe and calm the nervous system. You can sway a little bit from side to side as you sit. And you can even do different things like shaking and then settling and shaking and settling as a way to release nervous tension. And then, of course, if it's really, really hard to sit still, there's really no reason in the world not to get up and to start doing some mindful walking, just moving your attention away from what you're thinking about into the sensations in the bottom of your feet to start with. And so once you give kids and parents You normalize this experience. Oh, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean you're a bad meditator. It doesn't mean that you're about ready to have a nervous breakdown just because, you know, you feel like you can't stay in your skin. This is the normal reaction. Uh, And here are a couple things you can do to release that nervous energy because that's all it is. It's some nervous system energy. We all have it. There's very specific ways to release it. And another good book for people who are interested in that and see that either in themselves or in their kids is by Peter Levine. It's called Trauma Proofing Your Kids. And, you know, all of us have nervous system energy and it just comes in and out in different ways. And once we are aware of that, we can deal with it pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. And it really becomes a way for a parent and child to learn together. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's been my experience and that's what I'm hearing as well as you're speaking is, is, you know, if we notice we're triggered or our nervous system is agitated, um, we can, we can stop. We can tell our kids, we need to take a moment. I need to walk away. I need to get myself grounded. I'm going to take a breath. Do you want to take one with me? Right. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And just think of the beautiful modeling we're doing. You know, it's like, I, you know, when I started out in my parenting life and also certainly my mother's parenting life and my father's, the parents were supposed to be perfect, right? And not allowed to show any kind of weakness because the thought was, oh, this is like bad for the kids. They're not going to feel safe. They're not going to feel they can trust. But actually 
there's nothing more reassuring for kids to have mommy say, oh, sorry, I'm feeling a little bit like I'm going to jump out of my skin. Can you hang out with me here for a minute and let's see what we can do so I can feel better, walk through the steps and then feel better. Now, obviously, we're not going to share with our kids things that are really, really worrisome. You know, we're not going to... Um, try to put so many of our own problems on them that they feel like they need to take care of us as opposed to the other way around. Yes. But just being able to identify, oh, mommy's mind is, is a little bit cloudy right now, just like in this, in this um, snow globe. And let's just stop and watch the snow settle and together see whether or not mommy's mind settles too. And yeah. that's a beautiful way of modeling the practice, doing it together and showing kids mm -hmm. that we can take care of ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, you're making me think of recently, my, my youngest um, was having, was upset about something mm -hmm. and it was later in the day and he kind of he lost it, you know, kind of lost it. And generally I can kind of sit with him when he loses it, right? That's generally my go-to just kind of sit with him and be with him and help him. But I had, I was just full, you know, from the day and, and I'm like, I can't, I, I told him like, I can't, I can't do it right now. <laughs> and I walked away and uh -huh. He started screaming, it's your job. Help me calm down. <laughs> it's your job. And he got so mad at me. Yeah. And, it, you know, his anger kind of shook me to come back and say, you know, I know that usually is my role. And, and I couldn't. And I kind of explained to him why I couldn't. You know, I told him I was tired. I told him I'd had a lot of work that day. And I said I was sorry. And asked him if he'd be willing to start again. You know, can we start again right now? And he kind of, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a beautiful story. And yeah. you know what it, it also just really points to, which is something that I so wish I had known when I was a younger mom, but um, is so well known now, is that there really is absolutely no expectation that there's a perfect parent. Yeah. But... What we can do, and we're all going to mess up, but what we can do and what we can always do is repair. Yeah. So being able to go back and repair, especially at times where, you know, when the nervous system is all agitated and somebody's all worked up, whether it's us or whether it's the kids, then we, we are our windows of tolerance, as Dan Siegel calls it in the developing mind, our windows of tolerance narrow, we become less flexible, we become more rigid, and it's tough, if not impossible, to be open to new ideas. That's just what happens uh, when we are fight or flight kind of kicks in. Yeah. So our kids, when they're in that spot, trying to reason with them then, or trying to reason with us when we're starting to kind of, you know, buckle down and, you know, get less, more reactive and less flexible, that's not realistic for us either. So by doing exactly what you did, taking care of yourself, you were also taking care of him. You walked away, you let it all settle, you came back. You talked to him about it at a time, both you and he had a much wider window of tolerance. It was much more broad. And then when you have that wide window of tolerance, mm -hmm. you're no longer in a reactive mode. You're in a flexible mode and you can actually talk about things, even things where there's a difference of opinion. So I think that was a brilliant piece of parent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, he has that expectation of me now <laughs> and, and it was great. I felt like, you know, he kind of, was my teacher in that moment. And, and I tell my boys all the time, you know, 
I'm here. I'm the parent. That is true. That's my job. That's my title. But your teachers, you're my teachers too. Right? I, I'm learning as we go as well. Yeah, but don't take anything away from yourself in that. He, he was your teacher and you responded to him and your teacher really appropriately, but you were teaching him something too. You were modeling self-care and the capacity to be able to take charge of your own nervous system and then afterwards come back and work through a sticky situation. So your, your modeling of that might, it may not have been the lesson that he was looking for or that you had planned, but it came up in the moment, which again is why as parents and teachers, unless we understand these universal themes that underlie mindfulness and meditation in general, and understand the life skills, stopping, focusing, quieting, caring, connecting, that we're trying to connect in developing kids, we're unable to really turn all of those wonderful, all those sometimes awkward moments of daily life into a mindfulness lesson, which is what you so brilliantly did in that, in that situation with your son. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, before you, I only have a few more minutes. I can't believe it's almost been 30 minutes already. I, wanted, I know, really fast. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, a little bit about some of the feedback you're getting from the book and any trends or, you know, directions that you see this is going right now in the, in the air. You mean trends or directions for the book or for mindfulness in general? I think, well, I think a little bit for both. So I'm curious if what the book is, is um, causing to arise in people. So what kind of feedback you're getting and, and people who are using it. And then also in general, what kind of trends in this mindfulness world that you're learning about through the book, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Uh, perfect. Okay. As far as the book, I've just been very, very lucky. And the feedback that we're getting is just been just incredible. And it's not a surprise, you know, Annika Harris, who has been a friend of mine and she was a volunteer teacher for inner kids, um, way back in the early two thousands, she worked with me on editing the games for the book. And she also worked with me on the cards and she is the mother of two young children, like really young children. And, um, so her, her in, input, as well as input from knowing you for so many years and other moms as they were coming up, now that my kids are older, was very helpful in understanding what the trend and the need out there really is. So the combination of moms saying to me and, and, and moms who I'm working with, like Monica, or like you say, we need something that is simple. We need something that we can just grab and that we could just do and that anybody can do because our days are, our intentions are good, our needs are great, but our days are busy and the demands for work, for home, for the kids' homework is too much. So we need something that takes care of all of this and that we can learn as we go, as opposed to requiring us to get a PhD in mindfulness anything first. So that's what I was hearing from the moms. But what I was seeing out in the world was that if these things are oversimplified, if there's not a context of the life skills you're trying to develop and the themes and the universal themes and methods that are woven through these practices, then the mindfulness becomes, it becomes too simple and it becomes kind of a mushy thing that gets messed up with other types of social emotional learning or, or that sort of thing. So it's not a bad thing. Bad things don't happen from mindfulness, but something is lost. So what I am hearing back about the book, which I couldn't be happier 
about. And it's also because this book is really the product of, of five years of teaching since The Mindful Child came out, yeah. is that it's simple, it's accessible. People can say, okay, there's a chapter on quieting. They can learn about the nervous system, get a little bit of theory and have some games that they can play within a couple of minutes. Mm. That combination of being able to have it simple, but yet not lose all the other pieces of attention, balance and compassion is what we were trying to get. And I hope that we did. And I, I hope that whoever's listening, and if you do pick up the book or the cards, uh, let me know because there will be more and I'm developing now a new set of games. And so I really appreciate the feedback from people who are actually out there using them to see what's working and what's not. Mm, well, and I, before we, before we end, I just want to appreciate you. I have learned so much from you over the years and you are really one of the pioneers in this space and bringing mindfulness practices to children, to families. And I just want to thank you for your work over the years and for paving the way for, for many of us. Well, it's my pleasure. It's been nothing but fun. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So Susan, other than the book, how do we learn about your work? What can we point our listeners to? Thank you for asking, Michelle. I think the, the, the thing I like most for people to take a look at is the newsletter that I have. It comes out twice a, twice a month. And the website that I have that's been recently redesigned that has uh, podcasts on it and also blog posts, two different kinds of blog posts. One blog post that uh, gives you ideas and games uh, and another blog post that I'm really excited about, which is a new shout out blog where I shine a light on different people in the field doing really wonderful work. In fact, Michelle, we've got to get you on that shout out blog. But one of the things I like about doing that is I've just been around for better or worse. I've been around for a long time. And so I know all the people coming up and I have a bit of a platform because of the newsletter, which um, I hope you all subscribe to. And I want to use that platform now to really help get the word out about people and their work and what they're doing. Uh, so that's what I, I would like people to take a look at in addition to the book. Great. And what's the website address? It's, it's my name. It's SusanKaiserGreenland.com. I know it's long. You can get there through InnerKids.com too if you want. But SusanKaiserGreenland.com. Well, thank you for being with us. And I will, um, you know, we will share some more of your book with our, with our listeners and make sure they have all the information they need. And um, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Susan. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World with Michelle Gale. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share our podcast with a friend. And give us some stars and a favorable review at iTunes.